This is Mike Balaban of Band by Me. Today I have as my guest a longtime friend and esteemed colleague, Kevin Jennings, the current CEO of Lambda Legal. Welcome, Kevin. It's wonderful to be here with you, Mike. Thank you. I'm always glad to give you the chance to share everything that I know you've done and all of the things that you're doing now with a wider audience and particularly with those in the LGBT community who deserve and need to know about the important things going on. Well, I think what you're doing is incredibly important. Uh, there's an old saying by the black nationalist, Marcus Garvey, who once said, a people without history is like a tree without roots. And I think it's so important that we in our community know our history. And I thank you for your role in making sure that the next generation is aware of the work that came before. You know, Kevin and I have been good friends for 25 years. Part of what he'll discuss today is that he founded GLSEN, the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, which is a safe space for LGBT youth in schools to discover who they are and to not fear for their safety while being educated. And at the time that he took it national in 1994-5, uh, we met and soon thereafter he decided he wanted to make the board represent lawyers, bankers, public relations people, not just educators and teachers, as valuable as they were. And in that context, he asked me in my role as an investment banker if I would join the board. And I was honored to do that for nine years with him. Kevin, we're going to start at the beginning uh, because it forms who you are and what you do and your outlook on the world. You know, I know how important your mother was to you. I mean, your whole family upbringing and everything, but especially your mom. Your first book, Mama's Boy Preacher's Son, is in many ways a pen to her, a tribute. Um, would you share with our audience your background and your family upbringing? And not to trivialize it, uh, yours is a real Horatio Alger story. And I know listeners will appreciate understanding your, your roots and your way forward. So I was born in 1963, and I grew up in a town called Louisville, North Carolina. Louisville was at that time an unincorporated town. Um, I lived in a trailer park on an unpaved dirt road, and we were extremely poor. My father, neither of my parents had much education. My father only went through the 10th grade, and he became a Southern Baptist preacher, uh, baptized people in rivers, whole nine yards. And he died of a massive heart attack on my eighth birthday, leaving my mom, who had only a sixth grade education, um, the job of raising me and my remaining siblings who were still at home. My mother got the kind of jobs you get when you have a sixth grade education. She cleaned people's houses. She worked at McDonald's. She did whatever she had to do to put food on the table. Um, but she was determined that I was going to get an education. That was her, her gospel, was the power of education. So, of course, I went to Harvard because doesn't everybody who grows up on a, in a trailer park on an unpaved dirt road go to Harvard um, and became the first member of my family to get a college degree when I graduated in 1985. Now, my family were fundamentalist Christians, and there was a lot that was very damaging about growing up in that environment. But there were some good things, and one of which is that my mother absorbed a very strong sense of social justice from the Bible. And um, I always do my mother in her accent because that's the only way I can hear her voice in my head. On the day I graduated from Harvard, she pulled me aside as she whispered in my ear one of her favorite Bible verses. She said, now, Kevin, to whom much has been given, much will be expected. And I've never forgotten that moment or the directive she gave me as the first person in my family to ever go to college that I had a responsibility. And that responsibility was to give back. 
So I started my career as a high school teacher. Um, and I was forced out of my first job because I was gay. And when I went to my second job, I was very nervous about students finding out I was gay because I'd already lost one job. So I have news for any LGBT teachers listening to this podcast, by the way. The kids always know who the gay teacher is. And sure enough, at my second job, a gay student came to me and uh, told me that he was thinking of killing himself. And I was 24, barely out of college, and I didn't know what to do. So I said, let's go see a counselor together. And he said to me something I'll never forget. He said, why shouldn't I kill myself? My life isn't worth saving anyway. And that was another moment that changed the course of my life because I had tried to attempt suicide when I was 16 because I felt hopeless about my future. And I looked at that young man and I thought, Whatever I do with the rest of my life, I'm going to try and make sure the next generation of LGBT kids doesn't grow up feeling that way. Do you know what happened to him? I do. I just wished him his happy 50th birthday yesterday. Uh, He lives with his husband of 12 years in Brooklyn. He does IT support. I went to their wedding. Wonderful. Um, So about two weeks later, I got up in an assembly at the school and I came out to the entire school. November 10th, 1988, Ronald Reagan is president. One state, Wisconsin, protects you from being fired from your job because of your sexual orientation. Uh, The AIDS epidemic is killing gay men by the tens of thousands. And Reagan isn't even mentioning it. Right. So I think for listeners today, it may be hard to understand exactly how different 1988 was. And also, teaching was a very dangerous profession for gay people. Because there had been this stereotype forever that gay people were pedophiles, that gay people recruited, um, and teaching was a particularly hostile profession for gay people. So it was a big risk to choose to do this on November 10th, 1988. And the next day, a young girl came into my office. She was a first-year student, ninth grade, and she kind of burst in and said, I want to start a club to fight homophobia. I was kind of confused, quite honestly, because she wasn't my student. She wasn't on a team I coached. I didn't really know her, except she was the hot freshman girl who had the hot senior boyfriend who was always making out outside my classroom, which kind of annoyed the crap out of me, to be honest. And so I was like, why do you care so much about this? And she said, oh, that's easy. My mother's a lesbian, and I'm tired of hearing my family get put down around this school. And naive little me had never thought about the fact that I might have kids who had LGBT parents. And so I, I said to her, what should we call this club? What do, you, what do you think a good name would be? She said, I don't know. You're gay and I'm straight. Let's call it a Gay Straight Alliance. And that was the first one in an American high school, uh, November 11th, 1988, Concord, like Massachusetts. 7,000 today or something? Um, today, uh, there are over 7,000 GSAs. Over 50% of American high schools have GSAs today. And some junior highs. Um, and junior highs and middle schools as well. So and it all started... Um, on November 11th, 1988. She, by the way, Meredith, is 47 now, uh, married to a man, has two children, lives in Boston. We went out for drinks a couple of years ago. Her lesbian mother, Joanne, babysat so she could have the time off to go out for drinks with me. So I'm still in touch with them as well. Um, And that really are the events that kind of changed the course of my life. And It's hard to explain to people also, coming from my background, how this is a 
particularly unusual sequence of events. But first of all, you have to consider the poverty I grew up in. I had all of what they called the risk factors, single mother, poverty, frequent moves. I went to 11 different schools as a child uh, in 12 years because we were poor and poor people have to move a lot. Being bullied. And being bullied relentlessly in school. And, but then you have to consider the social context of my family. My grandfather, my mother's father, and her brother were both active members of the Ku Klux Klan. And this meant in 1970, when my older brother came home and informed our family that he was marrying a black woman, that our family was really torn apart. And that was in many ways another factor in the beginning of my social justice journey, because every Sunday we went to church, actually every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night uh, for prayer meeting, uh, Thursday night uh, choir rehearsal, um, Tuesday night softball games. The church was the governing principle of our life. And we were constantly being preached at, love thy neighbor as thyself. Yet, When my brother fell in love with someone, he had to leave. He had to move away from North Carolina because it was physically unsafe for him to remain there. And for people who are a little surprised by that story, in 1970, interracial marriage had only been legal in North Carolina for three years. So what my brother did, particularly coming from my family's ideological background, was was a stunning thing. There must have been something about your mother, because your father had passed away by then, they had inspired both a, a brother to fall in love with someone of a different race and you to be able to be yourself. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, Mom didn't cope very well with this at first. She didn't speak to my brother for a few years because she was very upset. And um, then when I came out my sophomore year of college, uh, when I was 19 years old in 1982, um, she didn't cope much better with that either frankly. Um, But my mother had a strong belief in the Bible, as I mentioned. And one of the things that she taught us was the story of Jesus, where Jesus is preaching and people ask him, who's going to heaven? And he says, well, none of you are going. And they all say, why not? I'm paraphrasing for the biblical literists who might be listening. And Jesus says, because I was in prison and you didn't visit me, I was hungry and you didn't feed me, I was homeless and you didn't house me, I was sick and you didn't care for me. And the crowd says to Jesus, when do we do this? We don't remember doing this to you. And Jesus said, whenever you did this to the least of my brothers, you did this to me. And that was a story that really resonated with my mom. So I think she underwent a really incredible journey over the course of her life. She would end up in 1988 starting the first chapter of PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays in the state of North Carolina. And at the end of her life uh, in the late 90s, she was a full-time volunteer in an AIDS hospice that served primarily gay black men. It's amazing. Um, My mother mother was also hands-on masseuse in a gay black hospice in New Haven. Yeah. Yeah. And it it just, my mother is my hero. And I wear a necklace every day. And it's another one of my mother's favorite stories from the Bible. In this story, a widow puts a single coin into the collection plate at the synagogue. And I always like to remind people it was a synagogue, not a church, because Jesus was Jewish. (laughs) Um, 
And he turns to the congregation and he says, this woman has made the greatest gift. And when the wealthy people challenge him because they put in so much more money than her, he says, she gave all that she had. And my mother really imbued me with this belief that you had a responsibility in life, and that was to give all that you had to the least of your brothers and sisters. And that has really guided my life. So as damaging as it was to grow up in a fundamentalist family where we were also taught homophobia and racism and a lot of other hateful things in the name of religion, uh, there were some wonderful lessons that I got out of that, which really helped shape my life. And as I mentioned a moment ago, my mother really is my hero because here was this woman with a sixth grade education uh, raised by a clan member who decided in the end that um, she loved her kids and she would do whatever it took for them. And I did not know until after she died that she had apologized to my nephew telling her that she knew she'd been a bad grandmother to him because she couldn't accept the fact that he was black when he was a little boy. She never told me that. I found that out from him years after she had died. I keep hearing this and I just keep wondering why more people in a church, which is supposedly devoted to quote-unquote Christian values, don't somehow get that message. You know... (laughs) It mystifies me. If you if you read the Bible carefully, it is a clarion call to help people who are being treated unjustly. And yet so many Christians treat other people unjustly in the name of their religion. I have a t-shirt I wear a lot that says, if you hate someone because of your faith, you're doing it wrong. And um, I really believe that that Um, is the message of the Bible, that if you hate anyone, you're doing it wrong. So I um, personally draw a lot of inspiration from my faith. And one of the hardest coming outs for me has been within the LGBT community as a person of faith, because so many people in the LGBT community have been so damaged by by people of faith that they have a real and totally understandable resentment towards uh, the faith community. And um, you know, as someone who is motivated largely by his faith, um, that has been sometimes a lonely journey in this community because it's a community which, for very understandable reasons, has a lot of resentment and hostility towards people of faith because people of faith in many cases have done us wrong. There's a lot of efforts, obviously, to bring religious communities together with the LGBT community, and obviously the more progressive ones and even the centrist ones are making that journey more readily than the more conservative ones. So hopefully that triggering is getting less with more people over time. Yeah, I see, you know, for the denomination I belong to now, the Episcopal Church, you know, we have tons of openly LGBT priests. We have a transgender bishop now. You know, our, our denomination has completely transformed itself. But um, there are sadly a lot of um, institutions, the Southern Baptist Church, the one I grew up in, the Roman Catholic Church, particularly extremist uh, segments in the Muslim community, um, many Hasidic Jews. uh, Let's be clear, the Christians don't have a monopoly on on regressive social attitudes. You find them in every faith. 
uh, that continue to oppose equality for not just LGBT people, but also women uh, and people who do not share their religious beliefs. And I really think this is a real danger to democracy. Because once you start saying that religious beliefs trump law, you are on the road to theocracy. And this is, frankly, the central battle we're fighting at Lambda Legal right now. Our opponents are arguing for what is called religious exemptions, which means that they think they should be exempt from obeying non-discrimination laws because they object to them based on their religion. What I think they're asking for is a license to discriminate. Of course. We are fighting this battle in the courts right now. Frankly, the courts have been tilted very heavily by former President Trump, one-third of the Supreme Court. And in fact, one-third of the sitting federal judiciary was appointed by Donald Trump, the highest number of judges ever appointed by a single-term president in American history. So I'm very, very nervous about whether or not our courts are going to safeguard the principle of the separation of church and state. Because once you start saying that it's okay to ignore the law if it doesn't conform to your religion, where does this stop exactly? Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly slippery slope. You could be racist. You could be racist. You could deny. In fact, one of the most disturbing things the Trump administration tried to do, which we are very proud we blocked in court at Lambda Legal, was a new HHS rule which would allow medical providers to deny healthcare to people based on their personal religious beliefs rather than the medical needs of the patient. That was an incredibly dangerous concept. And we were able to get it blocked in court. But with the courts having been shifted so dramatically to the right by um, President Trump, that is not a theory. Uh, Land Illegal did a study of all of his appointees, and we found that 40% of them were people who had documented records of anti-LGBT rulings, And by the way, 81% of them were white men, which hardly represents America, a country in which white men represent. And they were all screened by the very conservative Federalist Society. Right. You know, white men represent about 35% of the country, yet they got 81% of the judicial nominations under President Trump. So, you know, there really was an effort to capture the courts for an ideological agenda. And um, at Lambda Legal, we're really concerned about that in the future. So I think that to wrap up the conversation about faith, I think number one, Unfortunately, some communities of faith pose a real danger to the cause of equality for LGBT people, for women, for religious minorities, for a variety of social groups. But number two, uh, I refuse, I absolutely refuse to let these people think they have a monopoly on the Bible. The Bible, the way they read it, is in my opinion wrong, and I um, am determined that the Faith, which I practice, which is one that says, love thy neighbor, has got to be the one that triumphs. And I'll go on and say one more thing. Um, I'm furious we've let them capture the flag as if it's their symbol. When I was a little kid growing up in North Carolina in the 1970s, every day we had to pledge allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That flag stands with liberty and justice for all. It is not the symbol of the Trump right-wing movement. It is a symbol of a commitment we all pledged allegiance to that we would fight for liberty and justice for all. And therefore, uh, we have in my little town where I live now in Connecticut, Southbury, Connecticut, every Sunday at 2 o'clock, we have a Black Lives Matter rally. And I carry a flag. 
uh, every Sunday at two. In fact, the first time I carried it, somebody assumed I was a counter-protester. And I had to explain, no, I pledged allegiance to a flag that stood for liberty and justice for all. So this is my symbol. And to me, you can't be a good American unless you fight for liberty and justice for all. And I think that one of the things we need to do on the progressive side of the agenda is we need to take back the flag. We need to take back the Bible. We need to take back these things that they have turned into weapons against us and remind people of the central messages of a flag that stands for liberty and justice for all, a book that teaches you're supposed to love thy neighbor and whether or not you get into heaven depends on how you treat the least of your brothers and sisters. Uh, We are the ones fighting for those values, not them. Well, they appropriate those values out of convenience because you can look at the fact that they were for law and order, but who's been who's been essentially not supporting the police lately? Absolutely. Right? Or the army, right? Uh, so they're, they're, it really is only used when it helps further an agenda. The flag is just a tool for them. Yeah, and I just, I just, and I, uh, why are we letting them get away with this? I, I don't understand. Um, to me, if you don't stand for liberty and justice for all, you are being a bad American. And we need to hammer that message home. So when you were teaching and you were starting GLSEN, kind of explain what motivated you to leave behind the safety of a, of a guaranteed job and start something that had no assurance of even being successful. Um, complete insanity. Uh, I had no idea. I would later learn in business school because my mentor insisted I go back and get an MBA that 90% of new ventures fail in their first year. (laughs) If I'd had any idea of that, I probably wouldn't have done it. But, you know, I spent a lot of my life trying to run away from my father's legacy. And it was really only in recent years that I realized that I am my father. Uh, I'm an evangelist just for... As, as my mama once heard me said, you're just like your daddy. You just got a little bit of a different sermon. Um, and I felt like we had the gospel and that the gospel was that school should be a safe place for LGBT kids. And it never crossed my mind we would fail, frankly, uh, which looking back on it was insane. But if you look back on my whole life, it's been insane. Why did a kid from a trailer park in North Carolina ever think he had the right to go to Harvard? Why did this guy who had never done anything except teach high school think he could start a national LGBT rights organization? Um, All the things I did, I did because, A, nobody told me they were impossible. Instead, my mother delivered the message from day one that they were all possible, that I could do anything I wanted in my life. And number two, because I was absolutely convinced that GLSEN needed to exist, and I was willing to do whatever it took to, to make it exist. And I worked originally from a card table in my living room in my little apartment in Boston. And that's how we got started. And this was before there was email. It's before there was the internet. I literally would type up the newsletter and photocopy it and put it in envelopes and mail it. Uh, and that's how we got started. And the remarkable thing to think uh, that... 30 years later, over half of American high schools have GSAs when it started really with a 15-year-old girl and a 24-year-old teacher uh, in 1988. I look back on it now, and I realize the odds against that working were astronomical. But 
I also know the truth of what Margaret Mead said, that um, the thing that changes the world is a small group of committed citizens who are determined to change the world, of which, frankly, Mike, you were one. And we came together, and we just wouldn't take no for an answer. Do you want to explain how you know, started working for that committee for Governor Weld and the others? Yes. Yeah. Well, in 1990, uh, Massachusetts elected a Republican governor named William Weld. And Bill Weld had had a um, gay roommate in college. And he went to his roommate and he said, if I could do anything to help the LGBT community, what would you have me do? And his roommate said, help gay kids. Because... We all knew that gay kids were four times more likely to attempt suicide. They were vastly more likely to drop out of high school, that they were repeatedly being bullied and harassed in school. And so Governor Weld created a commission on gay and lesbian youth, which is now the governor's commission on LGBTQ youth and still exists in Massachusetts as an independent state agency. Um, uh, It'll be celebrating its 30th anniversary next year. And what we did was we came out with a um, series of recommendations. First, we collected testimony from students from all over the state because there were people who still, I don't know where they think gay people come from, but they didn't think there were gay kids. So the first thing that we did was we collected the testimonies of LGBT youth and we published a report based on those testimonies. And then we made a series of recommendations, one of which was that the state banned discrimination in schools based on sexual orientation and set up a program designed to eradicate it, which we called Safe Schools for Gay and Lesbian Youth. This is before we had the B and the T. This is how long ago this was. And once Massachusetts did that in 1993, that's when interest in GLSEN really exploded because people started calling us from all over the country going, how did you do that? Uh, Because no one had ever done anything like that before in any state in the country. So we decided to go national in 1994, which is when I left my job. And I don't think I had any conception of what I was doing because about a month in, I realized we don't have any money and I'm not going to get paid and I can't make my rent this month. And we had a very small board at that time, only six people. And one board member came to the meeting and we were discussing this financial crisis we were in of having no money. And he informed me, he said, um, just so everyone knows, I've been approached by an anonymous donor who does not wish to be known um, because he doesn't want the credit or the glory. He simply wants the organization to succeed. And he's given us a check for $25,000. Did you ever find out who it was? I do know who it was. And he um, was a graduate of uh, another school similar to the one where I taught which had copied much of what I my school had done. And he was so inspired by that, he wanted to see other schools do the same. So um, that $25,000 basically got us through our first year. This is 1995. Um, you know, $25,000 is still a big sum of money, but it was an even bigger sum of money in 1995. And that got us through our first year. And then once people started seeing the traction we were getting around the country, people were starting GLSEN chapters in Cincinnati and Cleveland and Chicago and Seattle and Kansas City. Um, And students were picking up the idea of the GSA. Um, People began to realize something's happening here and they began to invest. And then there was a pivotal battle in 1996 that really made GLSEN famous. Early in 96, a young girl named Kelly Peterson called us. And she said she wanted to start a GSA at her high school, uh, which was East High School in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
We mailed her a kit. Remember, folks, this is really before the internet still. Um, websites were in their infancy. So we mailed her the kit on how you started the GSA. And she called back a few weeks later and she said, Mr. Jennings, you're not going to believe this, but my state legislature's just announced they're going into special session and they're going to pass a law banning GSAs. And she said, is that legal? And I said, uh, I don't think so. Let me call you back. So I called Lambda Legal, the organization I now am the CEO of. And I talked to a young attorney there named David Buckle, who specialized in school issues. And David called me back a few hours later with this amazing piece of ironic news. He said, Kevin, turns out a few years ago, the religious right passed a law called the Equal Access Act. And it was designed to protect the rights of students to form Bible clubs. And it said that if you allow kids to form clubs, you have to allow kids to form any kind of club they want. So no, what they're doing is illegal uh, and we can stop them. So with the help of Lambda Legal, um, Kelly and the East High School Gay Straight Alliance sued the state of Utah and they uh, stopped this law from going into effect. And this made NBC Nightly News. It was on every network. And there was this very dramatic battle in Utah. And at the peak of the battle, we decided to do our national conference in Salt Lake City. So we kind of took the fight to them. And it had two effects. First of all, for young people around the country, you know, first of all, thank you, Utah State Legislature. Because if you had not been so foolish, students may never have heard of the concept of a gay-straight alliance. But you made it national news, and then kids all across the country found out there was this thing called a GSA, and they started them by the hundreds and thousands. Didn't they end up saying we're not going to allow any after-school activities for a while? What they tried to do then was pass a law saying we we will ban all extracurricular clubs. Just to stop this one GSA at one high school in Salt Lake City, they were going to stop all extracurricular clubs in the state of Utah. But that didn't hold up in court either because it turned out that, strangely, they did allow some after-school clubs to continue to meet, and other ones they didn't. So we got them on uh, uneven enforcement of the law. But it was an incredible gift, this fight, because it publicized to a national audience that there was a thing called a gay-straight alliance. And number two, it really galvanized our community um, because so many of us remember being bullied and harassed in schools. And there was this sort of like, oh, hell no, you're not doing this to our kids. And Glisten started growing really rapidly because people were like, we're not going to let that happen to our kids again. No. Well, you know, back in... 94 or so, when you were still in Boston, it was still yep. local, I think. I got a mailing. You must have bought a mailing list with my name on it, telling me, this is who we are, and can you give us some money? And I think I gave you $100. Because it was just, wow, this I can remember what it was like, you know, hiding. And fortunately, I passed, so I didn't get bullied. But still, the fear was always there. And then, you know, when you approached me and asked me to join your first governing national board, uh, the easy answer was yes, because I experienced that and because my mother was a teacher. So I, I think everybody had similar memories and experiences that when mm -hmm. presented with the opportunity and need that Clisson present, you know, provided, that got more often than not people to say yes. Because I think when I joined the board, wasn't it like, Maybe two hundred thousand dollar budget in ninety six. Oh, if that. Right, one fifty maybe. Yeah, yeah. And when 
you step down. I know when I stepped down in, in from the board in 05, we were like seven and a half, eight million. So yeah, when I left Glisten in 2008, it was a seven and a half million dollar budget. So um, it had really exploded from over the 15 years from a budget of less than 100,000 to a budget of seven and a half million. Um, and like we said, the number of gay straight alliances went from just a handful to being several thousand. Um, when I left Glisten in 2008, it was because I had been the LGBT finance chair for President Obama's campaign. And the president asked me to come to Washington with the specific portfolio of leading a national campaign to combat homophobia in schools. So I went to Washington for three years and was the assistant secretary of education for safe schools. My first day in office, the religious right took out a full page ad in the Washington newspaper um, denouncing me. A few weeks later, 53 Republicans introduced a special resolution into Congress asking that I be fired. And you were on nightly news. And I was on the nightly news. Thank you, Sean Hannity, who uh, conducted a personal campaign of vilification and character assassination against me. And it was horrifying. Uh, There were death threats. Federal Protective Service visited my office to brief me on how much danger I was in. Um, But my partner called me one night, um, and he, he had stayed in New York where he worked, and I was in Washington. And he said, what are you thinking? And I said, I'm thinking maybe I should resign. And he said... I'll be damned if you went down there to fight bullying and you're going to let them bully you out of this job. And so I hung in there. And three years later, we held the White House Conference on Bullying Prevention, which President Obama keynoted. And we set up the national program, StopBullying.gov, to fight bullying in schools. And that day was one of the most moving days of my life because before the conference began, I was um, able to introduced the president in a private meeting to Sardinia Walker. Sardinia Walker was a mother from Springfield, Massachusetts. Her 11-year-old son, Carl Joseph Walker Hoover, had committed suicide the year before because he was being bullied so relentlessly in his school because he was perceived to be gay. He was 11 years old. Who knows? But I'll never forget Mrs. Walker pulling out a picture of her 11-year-old son and handing it to Mrs. Obama. And at that point, I think Sasha was 11. And the look on Mrs. Obama's face when she looked at that child and saw it was the same age as her own child, I knew that they would stop at nothing at that point to do everything they could to fight bullying. And I feel an incredible debt to Secretary Arnie Duncan, who stood by me during the worst of the attacks, and the President the First Lady, who did not waver in their commitment to fighting bullying um, for what they did to try to make America's schools better for kids. You know, the right wing will kind of stoop stoop low and not stop at nothing in order to try to undermine what we're doing. I remember a conference where somebody stupidly made some remarks about arcane sexual practices, and the right wing had someone there recording it. Yes. And they use that. That's what followed you when you went in the White House, wasn't yes. it? Yeah. Yeah. What happened was um, at a conference we had for young people, we brought in um, safer sex educators from the state of Massachusetts. And um, it was supposed to be uh, only young people under the age of 18. The right wing uh, sent an operative who was fairly young 
with a tape under undercover tape recorder into the meeting, planted really outrageous questions in the question box, like, can you tell me how to do fisting? And the safer sex educator, in my opinion, unwisely chose to answer these questions. And um, all of it was recorded and released to the Boston Herald, and it made front page news and it almost destroyed the organization. And that has followed me my whole life. If you want to Google Fistgate Kevin Jennings, I'm sure you'll still find articles about it to this day, 22 years later. But meanwhile, how many thousands of you have had a safer existence because of what Glisten has done? Yeah, and it just was a sign to me of their complete lack of principles. What we were trying to do was give kids life-saving information because, as I know you have experienced, the very first guy I ever dated died of AIDS. My freshman year roommate died of AIDS. My college mentor died of AIDS. Uh, One of my best friends from college died of AIDS. I I can keep going. And we knew that teaching kids safer sex practices was a life-and-death issue. Um, and they very cynically manipulated that to try and destroy our organization. You know, one thing I have learned about um, our opponents is um, there's a commandment called thou shalt not lie, which they seem to have skipped over in the Bible. And they seem perfectly happy to lie, cheat, and steal to do whatever they can to stop us. One of the things that um, my staff nicknamed me once was the Terminator, because they said, you know, you you just keep coming. You know, nothing stops you. And that's because I do have this profound sense of justice that I got from my mother and from my faith. And um, we are right, and we are going to win this thing. And they are wrong. Every child deserves to know that they are a person of worth, that they are a person of value, that they can go to school and walk down the street and be safe. And To my dying breath, I'm going to fight for that. You know, you have been a champion of the underdog across multiple silos of people and religions and ethnicities and what have you. Um, I know you're on five boards now, in addition to being the CEO of your own organization. Uh, For example, I believe you're still the chairman of the board of Muslims for Progressive Values, never having been a member in the the Muslim faith. First of all, I've always believed that if you want to have an ally, you have to be an ally. And having had an opportunity to come to know many Muslim folks and see the struggles they face, first of all, from outside their community with the Islamophobia that is so pervasive in Western culture, as well as within their community where uh, being LGBT or being a liberated woman is a a real challenge. Uh, When I was asked if I would help, uh, I, of course, said yes. I have an incredible mentor named Ron Anson. And I first met him when I cold called him nearly 30 years ago. And a few years back, I asked him, I said, so I'm Ron, I'm just curious, all those years ago when I cold called you, was I particularly persuasive on the phone? Like, why did you take the meeting with me? And he said, oh, Kevin, I take every meeting. Uh, And I think I must have looked completely crestfallen because he goes, no, 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 wait, let me explain. When I was a young boy, my mother taught me that if someone asked you for help, you helped them. And that's just what you did. Now, you only get a second meeting if I think you're good. Now, you got a second meeting. Uh, But everybody gets a free first meeting. So my rule, which I probably should not be broadcasting publicly, is anybody asks for my help, they get a meeting. Because Ron taught me that. 
And when I was asked if I would help with Muslims for Progressive Values, I felt like I had a moral obligation to do so. So, of course, I said yes. And one of the things I'm actually proudest of was I was the founding board president for the Tectonic Theater Project. The Tectonic Theater Project created the play The Laramie Project, which many of you probably know, which was about the murder of Matthew Shepard, the gay college student who was killed in Laramie, Wyoming in 1998. And a few years ago, Moises Kaufman, the artistic director of Tectonic, who won the Presidential Medal of the Arts under President Obama, sent me a quote and he said, Kevin, I found the quote that sums you up. And it's from the playwright George Bernard Shaw. This is the true joy in life, that being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being thoroughly worn out before you are thrown on the scrap heap, the being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the community, and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I live. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch which I have got a hold of for a moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to the future generation. And when I heard that quote, I was like, yeah, that that's kind of it. I'm not a big fan of work-life balance because my work is my life. And I am incredibly delighted to this kid from a trailer park in North Carolina to have been given the opportunity to help young people, to serve a president, to fight in courts for our community's rights. It's been one long, unbelievable, joyous ride. And I'm just so grateful for the opportunities I've been given. Well, you do embody that philosophy perfectly, but I want to be very clear to our audience, despite eschewing work-life imbalance, you do manage to have a very vibrant personal life. <laughs> <laughs> and I want, to, I want to focus on that for a second. Perhaps because of the fractured nature of your family growing up, family is extremely important to you. Yes. And you've surrounded yourself with a coterie of people that mean a lot to you and you who you give your all to and vice versa. Do you want to talk about your philosophy? Sure. Um, I believe very strongly in the concept of chosen family. For many of us, we could not, who are LGBT, we could not count on our families of origin to be there for us. I was lucky in that I did have many members of my chosen family, uh, my family, sorry. I was lucky in that I did have many members of my family of origin who were supportive, but I also had some ones that were not. So I kind of had to build my own family. And I've tried very, very, very hard uh, to, to build relationships across generations because I feel like that's something that's really missing in our community, that uh, there's very little connection between people of different ages. Um, and so I've built a chosen family, which includes people like my mentor, and I call him my godfather, Ron Anson, who um, is an 87-year-old man, down to um, young people in their um, college age who are part of a mentorship program I started called First Generation, where people like me are the first members of my family to go to college, mentor current students who are the first members of their family to go to college. And that chosen family, quite honestly, is the most important thing in my life. That group of people who 
I adore and cherish and love more than I can possibly explain are what gets me out of bed in the morning. My nephew, sadly, my brother who had the courage to defy racism in 1970 is now deceased. And I've become kind of a surrogate father for his son, my nephew, and they've just had their first baby, uh, who's now 18 months old, who um, is going to inherit everything because she's learned already to point at me and say, Papa. <laughs> uh, so every time she does that, the amount of money she inherits goes up in the will. But you know, I just feel so lucky to have encountered so many extraordinary people in my life who have made it so much better. And that chosen family is... Somebody asked me recently, said, what, if if I really wanted to understand you, what would be the number one thing to know about you? I said, my chosen family is number one in my life. And some of the extraordinary people in that family, for instance, are um, a young man from London I met when I lived there named Mawson Zaidi. Mawson just wrote an incredible book called A Dutiful Boy, which is an account of growing up gay and Muslim. Everyone should buy it. Everyone should read it. It is a remarkable book. Uh, it's been optioned to be made into a movie. And I met Mawson because of my take every meeting rule. And these people who I take every meeting with often end up becoming part of my family. So it's just been a privilege. That's really the philosophy that we at Bammer embody as well, which is the idea in, in our specific case that storytelling can bring people together across yes. generations. Younger people are hungry for a sense of where they come from. And not only that, for our knowledge and experience of maybe where they can go and how to get mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. But people my age and in a few more years your age, as we retire, you know, we often lose purpose. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, being there for younger people and remaining connected to what's current through younger people can be the way that we remain relevant. I think not only that, but... I learn a lot from them. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about a lot of the young LGBT people I know, and I mean this in the best sense of the word, they are shameless. My generation grew up with so much shame. Yeah. Young LGBT people I know today think nothing of walking down the street hand in hand. Yeah. Uh, I'm embarrassed to admit at age 58, it, it still makes me a little nervous. Interesting. Um, because I remember, you know, the years in which that was putting your life at risk. And when I see the, the joy and shamelessness of young LGBT people, I am delighted. Uh, and I feel like they've got something they can teach me as well. So I think that for everything I've done for any of the young people I've mentored, they've given me twice as much back. Well, it's great to see the diminishing internalized homophobia. Yes. I think that um, internalized homophobia is actually the biggest problem in our community. It's more than external discrimination. Right. And also we are kind of tearing ourselves apart as a community because of that self-loathing and the discrimination we embodied against other people that are part of us. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things, we have a second home in Connecticut and the play The Inheritance, which I saw three times, it was a had a major impact on my life. In that play, there is a, a home in rural upstate New York that is a haven for uh, LGBT people. And I took a posse of my young chosen family to see The Inheritance in New York. And one of them turned to me at the end of the play and said, you know that for all of us, your house in Connecticut is the house in the play. 
And um, it probably was one of the greatest compliments I've ever received because what I want to do is build a community where we lift each other up because so many things we do to each other uh, as LGBT people, we're, we're sometimes very cruel to one another. I personally hate the concept of reading people. I think it's hateful and destructive and should be banned. Reading? Reading oh, people yeah. where you um, put people down right. um, and you think it's funny and witty. Um, I despise it. Um, we get in enough- my experience, that comes out of self-loathing. Right. And the reality is LGBT people get enough negative messages every single day. They don't need another one from someone else in their community. And I feel really strongly that I and other LGBT people have a moral responsibility to lift each other up. And that is something that I will try to do as long as I have the ability to do so. Because I think that that's what being a, a, a good gay involves is helping build other LGBT people well, up. I want to thank you for what you've done for all of the community, but I also want to thank you for what you've done for and meant to me. You've now been in my life, I think it's 26 years or so. Yes. I think I'm, I'm like one year less than your partner. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, um, I'm very proud to call you my friend. Well, Mike, it has been an honor to work with you. I'm going to brag about you for a second. Mike was the first vice chair of the Glisten board and, was instrumental in helping getting Glisten off the ground. And I think this project you're doing now is so incredibly important because passing down history is so vital. You know, frankly, LGBT people, we tend to get forgotten because who remembers you? Your kids remember you. And we tend to get forgotten. And therefore, preserving our stories in this form is so critical because it's a way of making sure that they're not lost. I also keep thinking of that 10-year-old trans kid who comes across our website mm-hmm. and finds that there's a path forward that mm-hmm. they weren't aware of. I mean, it, it's certainly going to be there for future generations, but it can be there for the current ones as well. Well, Michelle Obama was famous for saying, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Right. Um, and I think that part of what your work does, Mike, is show people what they can be. And like the first lady used to say, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Well, thanks again. And uh, I'm up here with Kevin in his home in Connecticut, so I'm going to enjoy the remaining day I have with him and his partner, Jeff. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you so much for listening. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, Justin Winnick, and Matteo Nikolov. For more stories, go to bammer.co. If you'd like to contribute a story from your life, contact me at mike at bammer.co.